I think one of the most poignant scenes in any movie I've ever seen, live action or animated, this one happens to be animated, is in the opening scene of Pixar's Up, where there's, there's two little kids who get to be buddies when they're really young, Carl and Ellie. And they grow up playing together, and they create this adventure book. And in this adventure book, it's kind of like a little scrapbook for explorers where they glue carnival tickets and twigs and things, just things to sort of celebrate all their fun activities that they do. And so you see them having this childhood, and then it kind of fast forwards through their years, and they end up becoming really good friends, such good friends that they marry. And over the next 10 minutes, you see kind of this flashing scenes of their life, all the ups and downs of what married life is like together. And they're celebrating 50 years of, of, of being married. And then Ellie soon thereafter becomes sick and she dies. And so Carl is left, he's a widower and he's alone and he's asking, what do I do with the rest of my life? That's kind of what the movie is about. And there's this point in the movie later on where Carl's just kind of rummaging through the house and he stumbles across this adventure book that they had made those 50 years or so prior to that. And as he begins to flip, to, to flip through them and to relive those memories, he realizes that Ellie, before she had passed away, had taken that book and actually put in all the adventures that they'd experienced as a married couple over those last 50 years. And then he gets to the very last page of, all the, of this adventure book, and then he says on the page, now, Carl, go have another. Now, this is the point in the movie when all the kids wonder why the adults are weeping, right? Okay, like, what's wrong with mom and dad? When's the action start? This is boring, right? And by the way, men, pro tip for Valentine's Day next year, up theme gifts are the best, okay? Just saying, okay, just saying. Guys, we have the ancient Near East version of Carl and Ellie in Genesis. You know, we've, we've been in Genesis now a number of months, and we were introduced to Abraham and Sarah back in Genesis um, 12, and now some, I don't know, 100 years, 75 years have, have gone by. And Abraham and Sarah, like Carl and Ellie, have had all their ups and downs, but they weren't married for a mere 50 years we estimate they were probably married for about a hundred years, if you can imagine. And as you would expect, it tells us in verse 2 that when Sarah died, Abraham, it says, went in to mourn and to weep for her. Those are very strong words. They're very poignant words. You can just see Abraham coming in and lying prostrate at, the, at her deathbed or visiting her and weeping over her. I mean, you can, can't you just kind of taste his grief? And for those of you who have lost a spouse or a loved one, you know all too well what that's like. But then something, I think, I think odd happens, a, a, an odd turn in this text. When it says in verse 3, Abraham rose up from his dead and said to the Hittites, Give me a piece of land where I can bury my wife. Now, what's interesting or what I think odd about this is that Moses spends the bulk of this passage, comparatively speaking, talking about funeral arrangements, talking about the whole process and negotiating process that Abraham goes through to securing a burial plot. And if we think about it for a second... The Bible is oftentimes like that. Let's be honest. The Bible can just be kind of weird, right? 
especially the way it treats death. We think about all the stories in the Gospels where people died and there were mourners, people who that you would hire to be a mourner for your loved one who would mourn for days, if not weeks. I think about Job when God took away his family and his three counselors came and sat with him. And it tells us that they said nothing for seven days. Nothing. Okay, most of us get uncomfortable when somebody doesn't say something for 30 minutes, right? Seven days. Even in our study of Genesis, we've seen all these genealogies and so-and-so begat so-and-so and died in this way and died at this age. And for all of us from a, a postmodern perspective, let's be honest, this just seems, it seems odd. We have a hard time connecting to it. And I think in part, let's be honest, we're just uncomfortable with death. See, there, there's, there's an article recently that talked about the, the, the idea of moving away from funerals and more moving towards celebrations of life. Where in, within a five years, the number of cremations will outpace the number of traditional burials, oftentimes because it's cheaper, quicker, more efficient, out of sight, out of mind. Let's just kind of move on and be done with this. Now, the point of this message is we're not getting into the cremation burial debate, okay? I refer you to John Piper for that one. Not the issue here. The issue is why do we do what we do? Why do we view death the way we view death? Why are we uncomfortable in ways that the Bible doesn't seem to be. And I think Moses, for a specific reason, spends this, this much time on the mourning and grieving. It's not to understate it, but he spends this much time on this whole thing about burial because there's something important that he wants to teach us about how we view and treat death, something immeasurably important that's crucial for our souls and to anchor us in hope, and to anchor us in the midst of despair. And make no mistake, Abraham is crushed. You would be, I would be. So three points this morning as we talk about this idea of dying in faith. Three points. Number one, we're going to talk about the facts of Sarah's burial. We're going to look at the meaning of Sarah's burial. And then lastly, the lessons from Sarah's burial. First of all, let's, let's go through the facts, and, and, I, and I'm going to make a case here that what you see here is an elaborate set of negotiations, and there's a reason Moses is giving us all of this detail. Now, I know, I know we have a couple of, of gentlemen here at Four Oaks who, who sell cars for a living, and God bless you for repping Jesus in the dark, hard, dark places, right? Now, now, you know, if you're buying a car, you know there is an elaborate but predictable kind of ritual you go through when you have to buy a car, right? There's the engagement with the sales guy out in the parking lot, and he's convinced he can get you in this car today for whatever. His goal is actually to get you inside that little room. You know the little room I'm talking about where you lose all sense of proportion? There's no clocks. It's like a gambling casino. It's like you get lost, you lose common sense. It's like, honey, I just bought a Range Rover. Oh, congratulations. No, they, they want to get you in there so that you can talk and bicker and you make an offer and they make an offer. And then he always, there's always the guy that's out of sight, out of mind, the man, right? Whoever that guy is, the man, the woman, whoever. Let me go talk to my boss. That's the bad guy. 
and, and you kind of go back and forth, and it's up to him or her. And then you know, though, that you're reaching, you're very close to reaching a deal when that person comes into the room, right? That's when you know you've made headway. Now, if you're smart, okay, before you reach, a, reach a, a settled price, you, you don't let them know that you're going to be trading a car in, okay? That, that, again, pro tip number two this morning. But nonetheless, there's an elaborate set of negotiations, and this is really what we have here. Okay, when we look at the ancient Hittite texts and the covenantal documents from this time period, all of this is sort of playing to type. So Abraham kind of tells us right off, he knows his position. Number On verse 4, he says, I'm a sojourner, I'm a stranger. Now, what does that mean? We, well, God called them, remember, out of the, Ur of the Chaldees to come live in Canaan. And, but, but Abraham knows this is not his land. He's kind of like the extended guest. He's the guy living at residence inn, so to speak, right? He doesn't own anything. But it tells us in verse 4, he wants to make his first purchase. And he says, my first purchase is going to be a place to bury my wife. And they respond seemingly magnanimously in verses 5 through 6. No problem, Abraham. You can, you can share one of ours. You know, we've got plenty of tombs for you to pick and choose. And that, that sounds generous, but it's really not. It's really not if you kind of understand the customs. See, the Hittites didn't want any stranger or potential enemy coming in and buying up their land, right? They didn't want anybody to establish a beachhead. While they may have respected Abraham, they certainly didn't fully trust him. And so they did not want Abraham to to gain a foothold. And so, sure, bury your dead all day, but no real property has changed hands here. You really haven't improved your position of power. And so Abraham, though, and we're going to talk about why in a minute, Abraham, though, only a purchase is going to do. And so he makes a specific request of a man named Ephron. Now, here is another shrewd negotiating tactic on the part of Abraham. See, it's one thing when I come up here on a Sunday morning and say, hey, we need so-and-so volunteers to do this particular thing, right? And you'll all go, yeah, we need that. Somebody else ought to do that, right? That's kind of how that typically goes. But when there's a personal invitation and saying, hey, I, I think, you know, I've seen God work in this way and this way, and I really want to appeal to you personally. That has much more impact, doesn't it? And so Abraham is playing that game. He, he, he's going to approach Ephron personally because it's going to be harder for Ephron to deny him in that way. So, but verse 11, look there. Ephron, again, seemingly magnanimously says, well, no problem, Abraham. I will just give you, I'll give it to you and the field. Now, again, it sounds generous, but it's also a negotiating tactic. It's like going to the restaurant and the four of you are sitting there and there's, and there's, a, there's one check, right? And everybody's thinking the same thing. Who's paying for that? Who's got that check? And, and always somebody sort of feigns like going towards the check, knowing that somebody else will intervene and pay it first, right? I just heard that. I've just heard that that happens sometimes, right? Well, that's what's happening here. See, he knows Abraham wants to make a purchase. And what he's basically saying is, Abraham, if you want to purchase, actually purchase this cave, you're going to have to purchase the field too. It all comes together. He knows Abraham is in a vulnerable negotiating position. So he says, yeah, you can have it all. 
wink, wink, at the right price. And so verse 13, we see that Ephron throws out this price of 400 shekels. Now let me give you some perspective here for a second. 400 shekels. Jeremiah, it tells us, paid how many shekels for a piece of land hundreds of years later? Twelve. David, right before his death, purchased land on the Temple Mount for, wait for it, 50 shekels. So this is an exorbitant price. It's an outrageous price. It's a crazy price. Now, Ephraim probably didn't think he was going to get all of the, all the money that he wanted, but yet, to his surprise, I think, Abraham, with no counter, accepts it. Now look at verse 20. It says, this, this cave, this piece of land was made over to Abraham as property. Now that's legal language. We see all sorts of parallel in the Hittite literature. Even this reference to verse, in verses 17 and 18 to the trees that were on the land. There was this idea that, that what's happening here is that these contracts were wanting to make it crystal clear as to whose property was being transacted and who this property belonged to. Now, now, all this is to say this. Moses wants to make it super clear to us that Abraham's claim to this plot of land and this little cave is irrevocable. It's unassailable. It is absolute. There are witnesses. There is money. There are deeds. It is beyond all question. It is beyond all doubt. And the question we have to answer, though, is why has Abraham leveraged so much? For just, I mean, it's just a, it's just a field. It's just a cave. It's just, just a, it's a burial spot. Why, why is this so important for Abraham? Why is it so important that he spend this money? Why is it so important that he, in a sense, expend all of his relational capital with the Hittites? And what I want to show you is that everything that Abraham is doing here is born solely and purely out of faith. So let's look at point two, the meaning of the burial. Because part of what's going on here, let's remember, is that when God called Abraham to come to Canaan, he, he came with a promise. And what was the promise? Abraham, one day, what? This whole land will be yours and to your descendants. It'll be all yours. I know the Canaanites are living here now, but one day, Abraham, it's going to be yours. Now, he didn't tell Abraham when that was going to happen, but, but he's probably been in Canaan now 75 years, 100 years, we don't know exactly. And you can imagine that, that this was something important. This was something Abraham looked forward to. This was Abraham's dream. I'm going to be blessed and I'm going to be a great nation. And this, all of this land is going to be mine. I mean, he knew it might take a while, but this was on his bucket list, right? This was his dream. But listen, for Oaks, it's getting to be towards the end of his life. And now I think Abraham realizes maybe for the first time, that it's not going to happen. His life is not going to end the way he thought it was. Maybe he thought, we're just, you know, Sarah and I are going to be just indefinitely married. We're going to inherit this land and the land, we're going to occupy it. We're going to pass it down to our kids. But as he's getting towards the end of his life, he's realizing 
It's just not going to be that way. Now, let me ask you a question. In what way in your life right now can you relate where there is some dream unfulfilled, some disappointment you're feeling acutely? Maybe it's a tragedy. Maybe it's a death. Whatever it is, you're at this point in your life and it's just not where you thought you would be. Your marriage isn't what you thought it would be. Your family's not what it, you thought it would be. Your, your finances, your job, your, your whole situation, whatever your bucket list, whatever the dreams that you've had on there, they're just, it's not turning out like you thought it would. This, more than anything, I think, is the root of apostasy. Now, what is apostasy? Apostasy is not simply not being a Christian. Apostasy is someone who's professed Christ, who's claimed to be a Christian, but then who turns away, who falls away. And I think sometimes the root of apostasy is that at its core, we are just brokenhearted when it comes to God. We are disappointed with God. We are, if we're honest, angry with God. We feel like God has wounded us. We feel like God has made us promises and he's not being faithful. And apost- all apostasy is, is a desire to live life and to fix my life separated from God. God, I don't trust you to do what you're going to do. I only trust myself to do what I can do. Folks, where, what is the Sarah equivalent in your own life right now? Where is that place maybe of deepest pain, deepest discouragement, where you would begin to question the goodness of God? That's where Abraham is. And Abraham, that's why Abraham says, I want that burial plot. Now, now why is that? I think it's all of faith. See, this is Abraham's way of saying, I may die without the land. But we need a memorial here. We need a marker. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust in the Lord and that he is going to be faithful. And that even though it's only going to be a postage stamp of a piece of land in my life, when I die, that's not the end. God is faithful. God is going to continue to work. God is going to fulfill his promises. Bruce Walkie says this. By firmly securing a piece of real estate in the land God promised him... Abraham demonstrates his unswerving commitment to the promise. Now, as we go through the rest of Genesis, what's very interesting is that all of the patriarchs and their families are buried in this place. As we just read a second ago in chapter 25, Abraham himself is interred there. We're going to find that Isaac is buried there. Rebecca is buried there. Rachel is buried there. Now, this is somewhat bizarre Jacob, when he is with his 12 sons in Egypt, and he's getting ready to die, what are his last instructions? Do not bury me with these Egyptians. Take me back to Canaan and bury me with my forefathers. Even, let's be honest, creepier than that, what are Joseph's last words? We're going to find out. 400 years after he dies and is mummified, they, he gives them specific instructions. Whenever you return to, to Canaan, don't leave me here. Don't leave me here. Take my bones back to Canaan. See, this doesn't have to do with a morbid fascination with death. This has to do with a people 
who were looking toward an internal inheritance. These were people who were saying, God, it may not be in my life. You may not have given me everything that I wish that I had, but you are faithful. You are working. You will fulfill your word. See, I think that people would walk by that memorial. And by the way, there's a mosque on the traditional side of this grave as we speak. But I believe that generations of Israelites would walk by this memorial and they would be reminded, my ancestors are dead and I'm going to die too. But my God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. See, in the Gospels, when Jesus is engaged in a little theological fisticuffs with the Sadducees about the resurrection. Remember, the Sadducees said, you know what? Only the first five books have any, any weight with us. And they don't say anything, Jesus, about the resurrection. Nothing. And Jesus said, how wrong you are in, two, in about two sentences. He says, why do you think then that the Torah does not say that God was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Why do you think he says that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We worship a God that is living. And this is what Abraham is clinging to, to the very last day of his life. Hebrews eleven thirteen. I love this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. You've heard me say this before. The reason sometimes life so devastates us sometimes is that we expect the wrong things from it. See, they were looking forward to the promise that they had not received. And here is the hope of every believer in Jesus Christ this morning. For Oaks, do you realize you have received the promise? You have received the promise. Is Jesus Christ. He has come. He is the fulfillment of Abraham's seed. He has died. He's taken on your sin. Death has not conquered him. He's been raised to life by the Father, and he is one day coming back. And because of that, you too can die by faith. Folks, we want to live by faith. We also want to die by faith. See, we're all going to die in something, right? Die in despair, die in discouragement, die with a broken heart. Abraham dies trusting in the promises of God. Where do you and I in our life today just need to be reminded of that? Last thing will be done. What are some lessons, some specific lessons that we can take from this burial? If you go down to chapter 25, which we also read... It says that in verse 7 that Abraham breathed his last and was gathered to his people. That's not a throwaway line. You know, you can tell oftentimes what kind of person a person was by who attends their funeral, right? Who their relationships and associations, where their investments have been, where they've, where they poured out their heart and their life. It says here that Abraham was surrounded by not just his people, but the people of God, the covenant people, the people that worshiped Yahweh right alongside of him. And this is meant to show us 
and to be a confirmation of what kind of person Abraham was to the end. He ultimately was the end. He was a man of faith. It doesn't mean that Abraham didn't die without regrets. There was a ton of regrets. It's just that his regrets did not overshadow his faith. And it says that he died full of years and in a good old age. And those, again, are Hebraic expressions which fundamentally mean Abraham died content. Abraham was at peace in his soul. And I want that, and I want that for you, because I think those who have peace in their souls are those who live lives honoring and glorifying to God that are a blessing to others. This is what Bruce Waltke again says. He says, biblical faith is largely a matter of memory. Through memory, each generation of believers commits itself to the faith of its ancestors. Let me mention three ways quickly. Three ways that we want to remember in a way that I believe prepares us for dying and death. Number one, remember your death. See, we're in a world that wants not to dwell on that, not to think about that. Everything is oriented towards prolonging our life or avoiding the inevitabilities of our life, whether it's food or exercise or whatever it is that we're going to do. But we need reminders, and not in a morbid way, but we need reminders daily, probably more so than other cultures who came before us where death was such a prominent place of their everyday experience. But we need gospel reminders. So for me, one of the ways that happens is um, when I visit the hospital and had to visit many of you and had to visit many of our church family who never went home from the hospital. And I often have to remind myself, you know, Paul, you're going to be here one day. 30 years, 30 days, 30 minutes, I don't know. Where is your hope? What are you leveraging your life towards? If this really is the last day of your life, Paul, what would you change now that would reflect that you are living and putting it all in the middle of the table for God's glory, leveraging everything for his sake? So that is a healthy rhythm in our lives. Parents, that is a healthy rhythm with your kids. Number two, remember your down payment. For Abraham, this plot of land was earnest money. It was a symbolic reminder that God is faithful and he's going to give the land in his timing. He's going, to, he's going to carry through on his promise. Now you may say, Pastor Paul, what is that for us? What is our deposit? What is our earnest money? What is our guarantee? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. Now listen, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a what? Guarantee. As a deposit. As earnest money. The Holy Spirit, in other words, what God has given us as his guarantee, church, is himself. See, the reason we can be full of hope today is that there is not one millisecond of your Life, temporal or eternal, where you will be separated from God. Death 
Not one millisecond will you be separated to God in death. God's spirit will continue to indwell in you. What you get when you die is simply more of God. And God says, one day I'm going to see you face to face, and here is my guarantee to that. I'm going to live in you. My spirit's going to live in you. And then to guide and empower and direct you in this life. But when, when you face death, you're going to see me face to face. So, my, so God could, it would be easier for God to deny himself than to go back on that promise. If you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, his spirit lives within you. It's a guarantee deposit in your life. And finally, remember your dependence. Look at verse 11 of chapter 25. It says, after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac then settled at Beer Laharoin. And, and here's the idea. It's, it's put there by Moses to remind us that Abraham, just because you are dying and there are things undone, there are dreams unaccomplished, there is land to be conquered, I'm still working. I'm still faithful. I'm establishing Isaac. Abraham, I'm going to take care of your family. Abraham, I'm going to take care of your line. Abraham, I'm going to take... That's on me. When you, when you go to your grave, you are resting with your fathers. You are in my presence. And then I pick up the torch from there. And in fact, Abraham, I, I've always had the torch. I've never let go of the torch. I've never passed on the torch. I've been in charge from start to finish. Hebrews 11 emphasizes this to us. He says, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. That's what dying in faith means. It means trusting, desiring, looking towards the better country, the heavenly one, eternal life with the Father. Now, you may be sitting here this morning, and maybe you're new, or maybe this, all this death Bible talk is really strange, and you may say, Pastor Paul, how is that even possible? How is that even possible to live in hope, to die in faith? Only one way, and that's through Jesus Christ, the cross. See, Jesus embraced death to save you from eternal death. Jesus took on your sins to save you from your sins. Jesus rose again so that he could come back and have death conquered on your behalf. Now listen to this, folks. Jesus died in faith. Jesus died in faith. He was trusting that his father would count our sin to him and his righteousness to us. He was trusting that the Father would raise him from the grave. And that's why, and, and Christians can be, we're, we're, we can just be odd people. We have a ritual every week that's centered around reminding us of the death of Jesus, don't we? It's the table where we take the bread and we take the cup. We never, ever move past or forget the death of Christ because his death was life for us if we trust in him and place our faith in him. Because we're going to end our service today with a vivid picture and demonstration of where our 
hope is that Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ is coming again. I'm going to invite our leaders to come forward, and as they do, I'm going to ask the rest of us just to spend a moment to park it right there, to think about the example of Abraham, but mainly to think on Christ. Take a moment to do that.